Welcome to Ars Technica Live. Every month, we bring you an informal conversation with a thinker from the frontier of technology, science, and culture. There's only one rule, no sound bites. We record each episode before a live audience at Longitude, Oakland, California's premier tiki bar. I'm your host, Annalee Newitz. I'm Ars Technica's tech culture editor, and my co-host is Sarus Farivar, the senior business editor. Tonight, we're really excited because we have law professor Ahmed Gapoor, and he is a professor at UC Hastings who specializes in national security and cybersecurity, so both kinds of security, which we're going to be talking about tonight in the context of the recent Muslim ban, among other things. I just want to kind of plunge right in because this is not something I'm an expert in and I have like a million questions for you. But one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize outside the legal profession is that when you cross a border into the U.S., there's an exemption from the Fourth Amendment, which prevents any, there's no limits on searches that can happen. Is that right? I mean, how does that work? How far can they search and how far does that exemption go? So uh, just to step back a tiny bit, uh, the Fourth Amendment is meant to protect persons from unreasonable searches and seizures. The border exception is essentially an administrative search that's justified by the special need. Special need being the need to secure the border, the need to secure the country, uh, the need to prevent, for example, unauthorized uh, individuals from entering the country. And that then justifies the intrusion without requiring the specific warrants or burden requirements of the Fourth Amendment. At the end of the day, the functional uh, result of the border exception is that your luggage may be searched, your car may be searched, so long as it qualifies as what Border Patrol would call a routine search or seizure. How does that translate into, I mean, you talked about like your luggage or your car, like a physical object being searched. What about your data? What about your phone, your computer, things like that? So the government has taken the position that routine searches uh, extend to digital items, uh, whether they be your phone, your hard drive, uh, your computer. They can then ask you to, uh, well, they can actually physically inspect your phone, press buttons, uh, open your laptop. If your laptop requires a password, they can ask you to enter the password. You technically don't have to enter the password, uh, but then starts the whole cycle of, well, let's just keep you around for the next 16 hours or so, or let's copy your hard drive and send that in for analysis. Let us detain your phone, it's actually, and crack it ourselves and look at it and then give it back to you. Several different sort of iterations. I think the longest I've heard of a phone being taken away from somebody was something like 90 days, maybe 60, 60 days, 60 to 90 days, yeah. And how long can you be detained if you don't give them your password to your phone? I actually looked, tried to look up like the record for the longest detention. No idea. But it's fairly, like I've heard reports of detention that's extended more than 16 hours. And what's the difference between the treatment that you'll get if you're a U.S. citizen versus someone who's not a U.S. citizen? Because we just heard about this case where a U.S. citizen was returning to the States from South America. He works at JPL, and he'd been down there racing solar cars or whatever. And he was told he had to unlock his phone. And he didn't really know what else to do, so he just did it. Right. So the main difference between uh, U.S. citizens and non-citizens, or U.S. citizens and those that are not permanent residents or citizens is that citizens are, we basically have the right of coming back into the country. Like how I slipped in that I'm a citizen, so please don't detain me on the way <laughs> out of the bar. Um, 
This dude was a citizen too, Well, right? that's the whole thing. So they couldn't have denied him entry so long as he proved that he was a citizen. And so he could have just sat there and said, well, I'm not going to give you my password. Likely what would have happened is either they would have detained the phone and then copied the phone, maybe later following up to, to try to figure out how to get into the phone, whether by hacking it or by... Um, which I really don't think happens uh, regularly. We don't have the resources for that. Or by, you know, chasing up with, with a warrant or some other form of compulsion. But the rule being, if you're a citizen, kind of stand your ground a bit, because I'd like to see what the record is for detention. Um, <laughs> if you're not a citizen, though, just please don't travel with electronics. It seems that, you know, under the Trump administration, there's been a lot of concern about people coming back into the U.S. and there was this gentleman, as was mentioned from JPL, who who didn't know kind of what his rights were. And I'm curious, are there other kinds of surveillance or other kinds of privacy issues that we should be thinking about with respect beyond just like, you know, searching of your person, of your bag, of your phone? But what about things like I know, for example, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think all foreigners have to be like you know, photographed of their face and have that be recorded. And there's other kinds of physical surveillance that is conducted. Sure, yeah, there's a, a lot of biometric data that's uh, obtained at the border of U.S. persons as well as non-citizens. I think the, the main difference, and by the way, I'm not an immigration person, so I may be getting this all wrong, but I think uh, the main difference is that when you apply for a visa these days, you actually have to hand over your biometrics in the embassy in the country in, yeah, in the embassy in the country uh, before you actually depart to the United States. And it might actually be part of your visa these days. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but that said, uh, there's, I mean, biometric data all over the place that can be grabbed, uh, whether it's, you know, those last time I entered the country, I had to, like, adjust my head so it fit into the template. And <laughs> I'm That's can, actually really hard to do. It's really difficult. I have yeah. a bad left knee, too, so it, <laughs> especially after long flights, it's terrible. Um, <laughs> So you do national security, and we have this idea of a nation, which has borders, and they're physical borders, but they're also electronic borders. They're also kind of a legal fiction. So if I'm crossing the border into the states, what are, what are the kinds of things that I can expect to be on that border physically that will be documenting my crossing? So not just going through customs necessarily, but like if I'm driving in through some back road or like are there, I don't know, are there sensors that are there? Are there Well, drones? there will be a wall. Yeah, I hear that there's going to be a wall. And we're not paying for it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so other than this putative wall, yeah. what do we have now in terms of, of a kind of wall? Well, what's interesting about the border, within 100 miles of the border, that's their jurisdiction. And that results in additional sort of investigation, additional type of law enforcement activities, and significantly reduced rights for immigrants uh, in that range uh, than they would have or that they would enjoy inside the United States, like once they get past the legal fiction of the border. So does that mean like they could just be pulled over and searched or? With reasonable suspicion, mm -hmm. which is so typically you would you would need a higher burden for that. So for U.S. citizens, you would not get searched without probable cause, for example. And for non-citizens, there would be a lower burden. Of course, either is uh, very loosey-goosey. Just like you can indict a ham sandwich, you can certainly, you know, call 
That's an actual saying that a judge said at some point, by the way, an actual judge. And the idea was that you can convince a, a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich because they'll just take your word for anything. Very similarly, a finding of reasonable suspicion or a finding of probable cause, I mean, there's no numerical value to it. It just comes down to uh, passing muster at the end of the day. And when you have already searched somebody and need to then later s satisfy that burden, it's just logically to me, it's just a pretty easy kind of process. Mm -hmm. And is there anything else? Like like I said, I was sort of wondering about like, are there sensors or drones? Or is that just kind of futuristic? Oh no, yeah, there, there are sensors and drones. But can, that are gathering data about people who are crossing, who people are that near are crossing, the border, like. Who's near the border. The question is really, I mean, I mean, we have sensors and drones inland too, right? So I, I'm not sure that I would completely distinguish that. And the sensors and drones generally, I'm hard pressed to find protection against sensors and drones. I'm not gonna give you my exam. Okay, I'll give you my exam. So let's say we wake up one morning and there are drones following each and every one of us as soon as we walk out of our apartments and um, everywhere we go. Is that in violation of the Fourth Amendment? So anyone in my class that is watching, um, that'll be on the exam this year. Um, but, you know, I mean, the reality is probably, well, I'm not going to give away the answer. It feels creepy, but, but I'm going to guess that the government would argue that that's okay. If I were in the government, I would argue it's okay. If I were in the ACLU, of course, I would argue it's not okay. Yeah, don't I have a reasonable expectation that if I'm walking down the street, my every move won't be documented? I mean, I think that is no. a reasonable expectation. Shut That's up. the government. But <laughs> at the end of the day, the Fourth Amendment protects against unreasonable searches and seizures, and I'm not sure there's a search there. I think personally, oh boy, here it. Here. <laughs> I think it's a First Amendment uh, violation, for example, uh, like a clear First Amendment violation if we're followed all over the place and it'll chill our activity, chill our speech. It's not as clear to me that it would be a Fourth Amendment violation, but, you know, extra points if you argue that on my exam. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about the test anymore. <laughs> so what about things like, you know, we've had recently discussion about government officials, border officials asking people to hand over not just passwords to the devices, but say passwords to their social media accounts or other kinds of things like that. Are there other concerns or maybe situations that you personally have been in as you've traveled in and out of the U.S. where you've been, been asked to disclose or unlock a device or unlock a certain account that you have to demonstrate that nothing terrible is on there or any, anything like that. So the only time that ever happened to me in the United States was right after, it was right after 9-11. It is a really long story, but, and it's always a long story, right? I was running Linux on a laptop and they asked me to open the laptop. Of course you I, were. Yeah, and I opened the, I was before I went to law school, I opened the laptop and then they see like this penguin on the laptop and they were like, what the F is that? <laughs> And Sounds dangerous. Yeah, they wanted and they wanted to see the, the the Windows screen, and I didn't have one, and it was a problem because I had to explain you didn't Linux have, like, to this gnome guy. Gnome or something? I did. Well, okay. What's gnome? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> like, why is there a penguin on your screen? Right. And then what is all this gibberish? And then what is a command prompt? And what the fuck, right? That's what happened. And this is right after 9-11 in Newark. It was so, yeah, I was supposed to get my citizenship on 9-11. It's a true story in Newark. I did not get it that day. My mother, who was in the building, in the, the second tower when um, really bad stuff happened, and finally gets out, finally gets out, finally calls the family, doesn't even tell us she's okay. She's like... Did you go to the INS building, Ahmed? 
Did you go to the INS building? And then the phone clicks off, and I'm like, shit, I got to go to the INS building now. They were obviously closed. Uh, so anyway, that's, that's just that. I'm glad that she had her eye on what was She's important, always though. got her eye on yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's you know, wonderful. citizenship is really, is really important. <laughs> so in the wake of Trump's talk about a Muslim ban and all of the new regulations that immigrants are subject to, we've also seen an escalation in ICE uh, deporting people who've been in the States for a long time. And I'm wondering, I mean, they're not responding to any particular new regulations. It's almost as if there's a shift in national mood that's kind of dictating changes in behavior. Is that because there's just a lot of leeway in interpreting regulations or what's what's going on? I think at least in part. I mean, it, I haven't read reports that they're actually violating re- regulations or that the increased deportations are in violation of regulations. So that could just come down to, you know, office level policy to just the same thing like a, like a police station or a, a police department might have a quota for tickets. And they might say, go get those immigrants this week, you know, or staying within the law, but it's just changing the focus of what they're doing. Yeah, or maybe the intensity. Um, and that's just the, the way that the administrative state works, right? So long as they're staying within the authority that they're permitted to operate within. And is this typical for what happens when we see tightening of borders that we see kind of like knock-on effects in other agencies that deal with immigrants? I'm not entirely sure. What's perplexing is that the, I think the record number of deportations, at least in my life, have been under the Obama administration. And so a lot of these regulations that uh, we might complain of now were actually sort of remnants from that administration that are being applied maybe to their maximum or sort of increased intensity. Uh, much as, you know, uh, there was, many would argue that the Obama administration had a very vast sort of wide interpretation of executive power, and that is sort of being taken now to another level. So as right now you you focus on, on cybersecurity, criminal law, national security, things like that, you You've also had a lot of experience working on other kinds of things. You worked on some Guantanamo cases as well. You worked on the case of a gentleman named Issa Dore in the, a case called United States versus Maulene, a Somali cab driver in San Diego who was charged under a Section 215, the metadata NSA case that is still ongoing. You're looking at me like I'm... Yeah, well, he was charged with uh, material support of terrorists, of terrorism, which essentially is providing money to El-Shabaab in Somalia. Right. So you re- you represented one of Maulene's... Co-defendants. Co-defendants. That's correct. So I'm curious, given your experience in Guantanamo and with Mr. Dore, do you feel like now in the United States, should immigrants be more concerned, especially people that come from these, you know, now seven countries that are under kind of increased suspicion, people from Somalia, people from Iran or Syria or other places like that? Absolutely. Yes. And in fact, you know, this has been my position for a while. And this is why, by the way, when I say the ACLU doesn't let me do like know your rights events with them, I don't really mean it because I love the folks at the ACLU. But if I were in the ACLU, I wouldn't let me do know your rights presentations with them because I would get up in front of a giant crowd of Somali Americans and tell them, guess what, guys, y'all don't have that many rights. So shut the fuck up. That's what I would say. But unfortunately, I mean, what does that mean exactly? That means that if you are a certain type of person, if you're a certain ethnicity in America these days, and like a Somali immigrant, like a Somali immigrant, and let's say you are expressing anti-government views, let's say you are lashing out at the government for anything that you perceive them doing to you or your people, that's completely permitted by the First Amendment. But 
certain types of speech when combined with certain types of ethnicities and religions can be used to, you know, fill out a warrant application for a FISA tap. Who the hell knows, right? And I've actually seen that at least not for a FISA tap, but for other warrant applications. I mean, I've talked to FBI agents that tell me that terrorism is an ideology and that is very difficult to distinguish from Islam, right? So at some point, like, we have to really come to terms with the fact that it's actually not, it's a different sort of set of rights for certain people. I mean, if the goal is to assert your rights, that's great. If you want to assert your rights and then go to jail for them, that's totally fine. You want to be wiretapped, totally fine. But if you want to assert your rights and get away with it, probably not a good, away, a good idea to say much of anything these days. Of course, if you're watching at home and you're Somali American, please go to the ACLU website and see the real rights that you have and then, you know, make your own decision. This is really interesting to me. So if someone is an immigrant from one of the seven deadly countries right now, I mean, is it is the problem if some if one of those people were to criticize the government or is it really or is it engaging in any kind of speech that might be considered a dissident form of speech? Like what if they are writing about feminism or what if they're writing about something else that like gets you know a lot of attention well i mean i i just apply the same rule to almost anything so for instance it all starts with something that american society or law enforcement in particular might not understand that well so that could be you know somali americans and their culture it could be islamic culture it could be quite frankly like cis admin culture uh, which they really don't get and and by the way cis admins and computery type people are a huge threat to the united states according to both this and last administration so you know and also very outspoken uh, have, yeah, I was going to say, like, if you're Somali-American and you're talking about crypto a lot, like, that might be... That really... might actually be safe. Really? I, I don't know, what? right? Like, I no, don't know. I have no isn't idea. is the EPA in trouble for using Signal right now because it's cryptography? Yeah. Dangerous cryptography? Yeah, I, I but mean, they're part of the government, right? That's the whole idea because they're an agency and they're communicating using encryption because they're afraid of their own boss. That's sort of the where that comes from. <laughs> but, you know, I don't think that, I, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, being a Somali and talking about encryption will not result in trouble. But, but that's not like an area that you consider to be a danger topic. I just have never, I, I don't think that any agent would just like, it would click in an agent's head like, whoa, they're talking about encryption. We right, should get a wiretap. But talking about Linux or something like that. Well, it was just the penguin. It was, yeah. it was just, <laughs> they're scary. I mean, they're not scary. They're actually very lovely creatures. <laughs> no, my point is, my point is, listen, it just starts with, with the, the more something is unknown, the more you can sort of play with it to make it seem suspect. It's a really simple rule, right? And so, for instance, there's a there's a proposed bill. I think in Arizona to abolish gender studies. You were saying feminism, right? So let's say we like let's say all of a sudden now we think that folks that do gender studies are a threat to security, right? And then all of a sudden we can't really like I wouldn't talk about anything having to do with gender studies. <laughs> really, I wouldn't. Yeah, stay safe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I'd be really curious to hear about your own experience as somebody who has traveled for your work, for your personal and professional work in and out of the U.S. If you, dare I say it with the name Ahmed, have if you've had any issues at the border yourself, if you've you know been asked to unlock devices or you've been asked weird questions, you know the pang, you mentioned the Linux thing on 9/11, but anything more recent than that? Yeah, you know what's funny is you asked me this question this morning, and it, since then, like I, I didn't think there were that many occasions, but then I've been just they've been coming back to me 
right? And it's really weird. Memories have a weird way of doing that. Yeah, so I, I guess I've been stopped a few times. They've all sort of, I haven't been stopped in the US for some time. I got, when I did Guantanamo work, and that started, I guess, in like 2007, I got a security clearance. And getting a security clearance, I think, uh, well, it definitely involved an FBI investigation. It definitely involved like the full sort of gamut. And since then, I haven't had any issues at airports in the United States. Outside the United States is a different story. So there's the laptop incident. There is, uh, I was driving into the US from Canada with a car, and I got held over for four or five hours. But that's, I mean, it's a fairly, again, keyword, routine stop where they just went through everything in my car and then just, you know, let me go. So it's very routine in that way. And you way. didn't, when, like, when something like that happened where you were held for hours, four yeah. or five hours, did you feel like, oh man, my, my rights are really being violated? Or were you just like, okay, I get it. I'm just going to play this out. I, I would, well, the truth is I would, had just gone through a breakup. I didn't really care. I just wanted to get through the border back to San Francisco. There was a really, so combining all the stories, there was one time I spent a uh, probably almost three weeks in Guantanamo. We had a bunch of hearings, so I was with my clients. And then I, I was so busy, I forgot to book a flight out, and it was right around Christmas. I had to go, I was working out of London at the time, so I had to go from Guantanamo Bay to London somehow. There were no flights out because of Christmas. And so finally I got a flight out to Jamaica. It's really, I mean, a lot of the workers in Guantanamo are from Jamaica. Actually, all the firemen in Guantanamo are from Jamaica, a very random fact there. So we get to Jamaica. I get held up in Jamaica because they're like, this is weird. You're not a fireman or Jamaican and you're in Jamaica coming from Guantanamo. That's really, really strange given how you look and what your name is. And, you know, so we had a chat about it that lasted a few hours. Um, <laughs> then I had a really insane night in Jamaica, got on a plane the next day and um, went to JFK. I got to JFK and the customs officer wanted to see my visa to Cuba. And I, I was like, I was in Guantanamo Bay. And they're like, well, that's Cuba. I need a visa. And I said, no, it's a U.S. territory. <laughs> And they said, no, it's Cuba. Sorry to everybody in Oakland. I don't really mean that, but I was trying to get in the country, right? And like, it, I mean, the US claims it's a US territory. The IRS claims it's a US territory. I was paying taxes as somebody that spent a certain amount of time in US territories. And no, he wasn't buying it. He was like, this is Cuba. I need to see a visa. You shouldn't have left. You shouldn't have gotten in. And now you come back and like, I'm going to detain you and all this other stuff, um, which I was really looking forward to because at the time, our, our sort of whole strategy around the Guantanamo litigation was to generate as much press as possible and being like the guy named Ahmad getting detained in JFK as a lawyer just because I'm a lawyer, that would have been awesome. And so I explained that to the, to, to the, to the officer um, and, you know, and then I told him I could have his expletive face well yeah on, on the cover of the new york times and then he let me go so that was nice of course uh then i get on the train um and uh anyone been to new york in the past like four years okay so subways have routine random stops now um so i'm on the subway um and then i'm trying to change trains oh no no actually yeah i'm, I'm going down these this long staircase there are a whole bunch of cops uh, downstairs waiting to uh, randomly search me i've got bags of things and i've got like papers from all my half the stuff is in arabic it looks just so bad so but i'm like so emboldened at this point because i got through weeks in guantanamo i got through jamaica got through this border patrol dude so you know i just, 
waltz up to the cops and I'm like, hey guys, random stop, huh? They're like, yeah. And so I said, I'm not showing you anything in this bag. And they said, what? And I said, well, it's all attorney-client privilege. And you should call your general counsel because he was my law professor. Something like that. I sounded like so obnoxious. Was that true? Uh, well, he did. A, he, was, he was a professor at NYU, and he did do a guest lecture where he showed us how he made it legal to do the random stops. Well done. <laughs> so I kind of like mentioned that, and, and then they, um, they called somebody, actually. They didn't look through my... Then, oh, just because I was so high on myself, <laughs> I took out like a piece of paper with like the... It looked so shady. It had like Arabic writing on it, like maps and weird, like, like weird <laughs> diagrams. Sorry, they were diagrams and they were weird. And then it was stamped with unclassified, like with an official stamp because that's how I could remove it out of Guantanamo. And then they were just like, yeah, we're going to call up. We need to call somebody. Um, <laughs> So they wound up searching all my shit except for the papers, but like they made like a whole display of it. It was really not, like I, I, it, it deflated my ego big time, as, as, as is obvious, right through this this interview. You got some good trolling in though. That oh was, my god, yeah. it was great. Yeah, yeah, I, that's, yeah. I thought about taking, very few people yeah. could do that and troll survive. the cops. Yeah, yeah, so that was yeah, that was very yeah. brave and awesome. <laughs> So do we want to open up to questions from the audience? So if you have a question, come up here, talk into my microphone. It's not a threat. That's an it's invitation. not a threat. Yeah, we won't search you. Unless you try to come through the border. <laughs> oh, okay. Through a lot of media, I've, I've heard the recommendation just never bring an electronic device over the border at the risk that someone might be inclined to want to search it. Um, legally, like, what's the difference between like mailing your own phone to your permanent resident address in the United States, like to like re-enter the country or something like that. Like if I didn't want to bring my phone on my person through airport security, could I just mail it? And like, what's the difference between like a police officer asking for me to like sign into Facebook on a personal phone? Cause like Facebook doesn't live on my phone. If I did not have a phone, will a phone be like produced for me so that I can sign into my Facebook account while I'm there? Oh, like they'll give you a computer and be like sign into Facebook? Yeah. Oh. And is it like would that also be possible for like Dropbox or Google Drive or I don't know I've got a lot of information. I don't remember any of my passwords. Yeah. <laughs> is that is that legal advice just to forget all of your passwords? I don't know. Is it? No, but seriously. <laughs> so so uh, those of you watching at home, the way to be a good lawyer is to just turn the questions back. But well, you should definitely mail your items unless I tweet otherwise, but I'm almost 100% sure that, well, any administrative search that would apply to like parcels or items coming in the country would probably be something that like scans them as opposed to actually opening the, pro the product and like trying to get into the phone. And so I think you would be safe in terms of a password protected encrypted device in terms of mailing it. The other question about the, like, how would one administer the social media stuff? I'm not sure. Well, I don't think they would administer it that way, but who knows? Because there have been stupider ideas that have already um, uh, flown with this administration. But I think at the end of the day, again, and I'm not completely up to speed on this stuff, but I think the social media accounts, or at least the, the scrutiny that they wanted to give social media accounts for folks applying for visas, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that that would all happen before a visa is granted. 
So you, there's a lot of stuff you could do if somebody consents to it, right? I mean, like at the end of the day, like this guy that was working at NASA, was it JPL or NASA? JPL, um, J- JPL. connected to um, NASA. He consensually provided his password, right? So at the end of the day, like that was not a search by any means, unless now we're thinking that somebody coerced him into doing it, which is a different story. What I do when I travel and I'm worried, I, I take a different device altogether and I don't keep any data on it. And that way it's easy peasy. Right. So. But if they asked you to put in your password to your phone. Hell no. So you would say no. Sorry, absolutely not. Never. Okay. Never. So even though. Never. You, yeah. So you have your clean phone. It doesn't matter. Just say no. I will not. No. And well, if you want to be sort of like if you you could start by saying no and then you could say I forget and you say you're stressing me out. And then if you're not a U.S. citizen, just keep in mind that they could send you back. That's the whole problem. Like. If you're a U.S. citizen, you will get through. If you're an LPR, like a legal uh, permanent resident, I don't think there is precedent on that exactly. Um, again, I would have to look into it, but I, I don't think there is precedent one, one way or the other. But if you're a citizen, just plow on forward, especially if you're a white person. That would be really, I mean, look at Laura Poitras. I'm sure you all know who she is, but I mean. Every, Documentary filmmaker. Yeah, every single time she left the country, she got held over for what, like six years or something, right? So. And actually, when I first met Laura, that's how we bonded over our paranoia of the government. She's like, I get stopped every time. I'm like, I don't get stopped. It terrifies me. (laughs) And then it was a thing. So have there been any developments with um, forcing people to provide their fingerprints for the Touch ID on iPhone or anything else? Because that's apparently that's considered to be separate, right? Like it's a biological as opposed to password or something that's in your head, right? Right. You can be... uh, forced to provide something that's part of who you are versus something that you know. Have there been any developments regarding that? Well, I think it's complicated. The short answer is no, no developments. I want to recommend a blog entry by a professor called Oren Kerr, and he's written a couple of blog entries about this exact issue. He's one of the, the smartest people that write about these issues. But I think at least in part, it has to do with whether, I mean, are you being forced to provide your fingerprint and do they know it's your phone already? For example, does the provision of your finger then lead to the conclusion that this is your phone? Because then that would, and does that then incriminate you? I think that's an interesting whole like pathway to explore in terms of why that would not be permitted. Um, on the flip side, if you can take somebody's fingerprint, why not just take their fingerprint to unlock a phone? I don't know. At the end of the day, though, I think the one thing about, and kind of relating this back to the the prior uh, social media question, like the idea that we all sort of uh, now use cloud technology one way or the other, whether it's through social media or our chat programs or just Dropbox, whatever, it means that when you open somebody's phone up, you get access to an incredible amount of information. And uh, the Supreme Court recently, I think it was 2014, uh, maybe unless it was 2012. Anyway, in a case called Riley, actually, as part of dicta, said, you know, you open somebody's phone and that's you're basically reaching across the whole globe and looking at data that basically is a reflection of their mind, right? Um, so at least I think the Supreme Court, at least part of the Supreme Court, is starting to think about technology differently. And I think that, you know, all of us know, I would hope that somebody's phone is super private. It's got all these details and the details are not necessarily just on the phone. They're all over the world. Yeah. So hopefully that will then come out to play in terms of how these cases shake up one way or the other. It's actually about the fingerprinting. I would never use uh, fingerprinting to unlock any of my devices because it's like it's pretty easy to um, 
get a fingerprint when you touch the phone, you know, to get it off of the phone. So basically, it's like writing your password 50 times on your phone. Doesn't really make sense to me. But uh, now my, my question is, is actually a little off topic, but you mentioned Guantanamo, and I would be interested in what's your assessment of uh, Guantanamo as a whole at the moment or back then when you were working there? It's a really depressing place with iguanas and jellyfish. <laughs> it's iguanas and jellyfish, signs all over the place, watch the iguanas. Really, like all over the place. Oh, uh, the legal assessment, so just today, um, I've never had like an optimistic legal assessment about Guantanamo, which is, I mean, my clients really liked me because on my first day I was like, hey guys, like I'm a really new lawyer, but don't, and don't know much about habeas, but like, I, that's not gonna help you guys out anyway, right? And they were like, you're our guy, you're totally, like we're, we've been here for like X amount of years already, so uh, we believe that. So just today, I think I, skimmed an article about some lawmakers calling for Guantanamo to stay open for new terrorists. So that was that was not a very optimistic thing to read. But and, and of course, I, I think it would I can't see that something like that not passing given our existing government. Yeah, so it definitely a very pessimistic outlook at Guantanamo Bay, unless you're going there for the swimming, in which case there are jellyfish and, and turkey vultures. Okay. Um, Which, yeah. Other questions about uh, legal issues or iguanas? iguanas? Early on, we talked about border crossings. And I, what I was wondering is, is it that a border search is reasonable or that a border search is unreasonable, but the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply? And is there an even important distinction between those two things? No. Okay, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I always thought that there, that there was a border exception to a to the Fourth Amendment. Is that not right? Yeah, no, but I mean, I, what's funny is like I'm actually teaching this right now. There, there's a sort of historical line of cases where uh, there are all these exceptions to, for example, the warrant requirement. If there's an exigency, you can enter a house because you believe that you will find evidence of a homicide. You just heard gunshots, etc. Um, and so there is an exception to the warrant requirement. Uh, later cases might say, well, the Fourth Amendment protects against unreasonable searches and seizures, and searches and seizures are per se unreasonable unless there is a warrant. Right, so which is it? It's like basically the same kind of uh, circular logic that commands the Fourth Amendment. It makes people love to write about it so much, except for me, <laughs> actually. Could the Third Amendment be used to- Tell our friends what the Third Amendment is. Right, so the Third Amendment, for those unfamiliar, says that the British government doesn't have the right to quarter soldiers in your home way, way back when, when that was the thing. But uh, the idea would be that if drones following you around is basically a government or military presence in your life, just as a soldier in your home would also be, you know, something that is protected by the Third Amendment. So is there like any way that if a student wrote that on your exam, would that no, be but good the, or very bad? <laughs> the, the, but the drones follow you outside. If they follow you in your home, you're, you're, <laughs> it's definitely against the law. No, we they add, like we make such arbitrary distinctions all the time. Like if you like if you attach a beeper to something, that's fine. If it tracks somebody in places that we would ordinarily be able to track them um, without violating the law, but if the beeper or tracking device actually lets you decipher where they are in their home, 
all of a sudden that's a Fourth Amendment violation. I mean, I get why, uh, but it's kind of also arbitrary, to be honest, <laughs> at the end of the day. I just love the idea that like there's a part of the Constitution that was so devoted to that. And it seemed, from what I've understood, there's no Supreme Court case law about the Third Amendment, about quartering soldiers in your home. Yeah, certainly none that I know of. I mean, I guess if we get to the point where we have robots that are serving as soldiers, this could actually become something that we would argue in a court of law. Like, like if you have to let the robot charge at yeah. your house. You have to let RoboCop in your if house. If you have to let, or if it's like very small, like if it's nat, like little tiny gnats that are kind of, you know what I mean? Like that are that are serving as soldiers, but they're they're really small, and so they're just kind of getting into your house. Just like nanobots. I guess that would fall under, that would still be surveillance, though. They would need a warrant, absolutely. Yeah, because... Yeah, they would need a warrant to yes. send in the, the nano drones. You guys have all seen that black. Unless the nano drones only detect contraband, then maybe you'd have an argument. Really? Who knows? Even I don't if it's know. going into your house? Well, but let's wait for the case and see, right? right. But, but, you know, there is a case. I mean, not, it's not a home invasion, but there, for instance, a dog sniff that determines that there's contraband in your luggage. I mean, that's okay. A later uh, case called Jacobson said that if you do a search and somehow you only detect contraband or evidence of, of criminal activity, then that's also okay. Even if it's you're in your house? No, no, it definitely did not go that far. Right. But, you know, that, that case has never been overturned. And so that that's a kind of a creepy case. Yeah. Yeah, because you could conceivably be sniffing data around yeah I think house. about it in the data mining context actually so what if you know we collect everybody's data and then we mine it and then no human ever looks at it and then it just generates sort of outcomes about people mm -hmm. and that's all it does is just generate culpability outcomes where is the search like was your data ever searched and do you have any right to privacy over for instance a database that doesn't include anything about you but was used to determine something about you mm -hmm. that's I mean, fairly what you, accurate what do you think like um, i don't think it's a fourth amendment issue i think it's a due process issue mm -hmm. and in fact i'm writing about it just now um <laughs> no but really i mean it's we we very much focus and concentrate on the issue of collecting data i mean that's sort of been a thing for a while but here we have situations where there might not be an expectation of privacy in your data like twitter for example and what if somebody just took all your Twitter data and all that of your friends and somehow mined all that and then came up with a conclusion about you and then used that to obtain a warrant, for example. Would that work under has the Fourth it, Amendment? Has it worked? I, I, I don't think that the Fourth Amendment would prevent that. Um, right, because technically you're saying it in public, right? Because you've said it on Twitter. Technically, you don't have an expectation of privacy over a public message on Twitter, right? Because, yeah. I mean... So interesting stuff. And by the way, cops are using that kind of stuff, right? So uh, I think Fresno has a thing called, it, they've got all these weird names like, like be alert. <laughs> no, no, really. It's like be alert. Or, no, I you believe know, you. Or there's one that's- Predpol. That just sounds awful. It does. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, Predpol is actually like advertises that they can tell you why so certain outcomes come up because they anticipate that being a challenge in court. I think is right, and I, I would imagine that, that if not now, in the very near future, that people who are coming into the country, for example, could conceivably have algorithms run on their social media presences or on their speech that they put on the internet or other kinds of things that has been data mined and collected. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, so for instance, like I think Facebook already has bots that try to detect folks that are, you know, like a bot that pretends it's a 14-year-old and then tries to get bad people that are trying to talk to 14-year-olds, for example. And... I wonder if if the federal government knows about stuff like that, 
why not just compel social media companies to mine their own user base and then kind of generate outcomes based on that? I don't know. Generate outcomes or generate profiles of people? Sure. You know, like, these are people who might commit a crime based well, on Well, just their get me friendship. everybody who's depressed and brown. Mm-hmm. Like, actually, just get me everybody that's depressed. How about that? Or, like, everybody's depressed and has a name like... Ahmed. Exactly. <laughs> right. Like, well, actually, I was going to say, Facebook had this program, and I don't know if it's still going, which was to try to figure out if people were suicidal and to send an intervention, um, which I think is a very lovely idea in many ways, but could, in fact, lead to this exact kind of profiling. That's like, what I would think of if I was... Who's a suicidal Ahmed? Like, let's, let's hey, try listen, to bring them all that's in. That's where we draw the line. <laughs> <laughs> Suicidal Ahmed, probable cause. <laughs> well, let's, from what you're saying, there. that actually could become a warrant, essentially. I mean, that they wouldn't write down like brown person who's depressed, but that they would that that would actually trigger. Sure, why not? I mean, why not? I don't I know, entirely seems, see why not. It seems illegal to me. That's not because not. I'm a bad person that is supporting these ideas, but like you know, I mean, if if they're doing it anyway, if they're mining your data, and I mean, why not just compel them to do it? I don't know. I mean, it's just an idea. I would, of course, challenge it in court. Yeah, because I was going to say, it, it sounds illegal. Why, though? It seems like that generating a profile of someone based on racial characteristics or a psychological, like some kind of mental illness would be discriminatory in some way. It seems like that. Yeah. Especially when it's before they've actually done something. I know, right? Well, they're depressed and brown. Isn't that enough? I don't know. Uh, I mean, it does sound (laughs) suspicious. Right? (laughs) And what if depressed brown and with a hipster beard? So I did, well, there's a whole thing about Facebook and hipster beards. So for instance, I could not have a hipster beard on Facebook if they were uh, basically analyzing photos. To so your beard is legit. It's not a hipster beard. No, this is actually the, I, actually, if I were traveling today, this would I would not look like this, just to be completely what does honest. That mean? I mean, you know, I'm very conscious that I have, like, I'm a dude named Ahmed who's brown, has a beard. <laughs> And I'm very conscious of that. And so, you know, I would shave my head, shave my beard, and even wear a suit just to all the Somali Americans out there. And the good thing is that once you get to your destination, the suit doesn't need to be re-ironed usually. Because if you were to pack your suit in a piece of luggage, you would need to re-iron it before wearing it again. But if you just wear it, you get protection and a relatively wrinkle-free suit. When unless you're detained for 18 hours. Unless you're detained for, for 18 hours. Exactly. A yes. Wrinkly. Exactly. But they All do right. have a steam room. That. that. <laughs> This has been really informative. Um, Does anybody else have any final questions? So talking more about the technology in the home, like the little nanobots. So wasn't there a case about the government trying to get into an Alexa around a murder? So where does that fall under all of this, under these amendment laws and everything? Yeah, I think uh, I think in that case uh, there was a murder over the was it like Super Bowl weekend or the weekend right before that, and then the government was trying it was a state case I think they were trying to get the recording basically the words that anybody said to Alexa, which is this Amazon tool that that basically got sent up to the cloud and were processed right. So, and I think the issue in that case is like, you're supposed to say, hey, Alexa or something. And so there's some sort of debate as to whether or not Alexa got any of the words at all. But I think a more interesting spin on that is what if you say, so I'm your lawyer, let's say, right? And you've got Alexa and it's on, it's definitely sending stuff up. And I say, I'll bill you, but it takes down, I'll kill you. 
right? And then somebody does all that crazy stuff to you, but I'm like in my office, but then I get arrested and they get Alexa to hand over the text and Alexa's like, he said, I, I'll kill you, right? Because it's AI processed that shit wrong. <laughs> I'm in trouble now, right? You're dead. <laughs> <laughs> And, and and there's you know there's disputable evidence against me. Which uh, how would you dispute? How would one dispute that? I think that's that's a really interesting issue because then you'd have to say you know this thing doesn't work like it's advertised. But just a thought. Yeah, especially because voice recognition is really terrible for people who have accents. Exactly. So you'd immediately have extra problems if you didn't have like the sort of you know for NPR instance. accent. Exactly right. I. Try to keep it NPR as much as possible. To, yeah, yeah, that's that's the American BBC accent. Anyway, thank you guys very much for joining us. Thank you. <laughs>